Matthew chapter 10. It's going to be helpful to have that in front of you um, as we track through verses 1 to 15 uh, together this morning. We're continuing on in our series. Uh, Well, we were looking at kingdom authority. Over the next three weeks, we're looking and thinking about uh, the theme of kingdom mission. Uh, Chapter 10 in Matthew really is a significant um, portion of teaching that Jesus gives to us about what it's like or what it looks like to be those who would be sent out uh, and go. So Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 15. Um, This week, then next week, verses 16 to 33, we'll be thinking about the cost uh, and the opposition we'll face. And then Derek will be uh, taking us through verses 34 to to 42 as well. Um, So really kind of three key weeks thinking about what it looks like for us as Christians to to go based on Jesus' authority. Verses 1 to 15, let's read those together and then ask for the Lord's help. Hear the word of God. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy there and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if, those, if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah and for that time. Let's just pray together as we come to consider these things. Father, we pray that you would give us in these moments humble, teachable, obedient hearts, and that we might receive what you would say to us, what you reveal to us in your word, and that we would do what you command us to do with the help of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I will... When I was a teenager, um, for a season of my teenage years, um, as, uh, uh, during the summer, uh, the, the church I grew up in, the youth group that I was a part of, uh, every year for a week we would camp out within the church um, as part of um, our holiday Bible club, our high five weeks, so to speak. And we used to camp out in the church. We used to help run that, but then we used to do also some local outreach as well, uh, as well as playing a lot of games and, and playing table tennis well into the night as well. One of my first memories of that week of being sent out to evangelize was on one of those weeks. Uh, we were sent out onto the, the main street in Korean, which is where the church I grew up in was, uh, with questionnaires to engage people, hopefully in some gospel conversation. Um, of course, fair to say, I was deer in headlights as a 14, 15 year old, um, fearful of what people might think, what might, people might say. I was immature in my faith. I didn't know what to do. Um, Perhaps as a Christian, you've been in similar circumstances. You've 
been sent out or you've gone out or you've maybe found yourself in a workplace or with a family member, you, you want to speak about uh, Jesus with them, but you feel that sense of fear. You feel that sense of weakness. You're maybe not even sure, what, what do I do? What should I expect? What happens if they respond like this or like that? Well, Matthew 10 is all about uh, mission. It's all about what we are to do as we are sent out and as we go. It's all about what we're to expect as we do that. Last week, we thought about how the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And there's an urgent need here for Jesus' ministry to be multiplied, to be multiplied. And that's what he's starting to do here in chapter 10. He's multiplying his ministry and his teaching by sending out his disciples to represent him in order to, to do that. And in doing so, as we hear his teaching to them, as he commissions them over the next three weeks, as we hear his teaching to them, we see timeless principles that apply to us as we seek to go out into our harvest fields, into our town, into our workplaces, into our families. So if you're a Christian here this morning, Matthew 10 shows us the mission that Jesus sends us out on. It shows us that it will be one that is costly. It's one where we'll face opposition. This morning we see the beginnings of that mission. We see particularly the authority on which we're sent out on and the instructions that we're given as we go. If you're not a Christian here this morning, or maybe you're figuring that out, Matthew 10 is here to show you the authority of Jesus' message to us as we receive it through his apostles and ultimately through God's word. It's here to show us where the authority of God's word and of the apostles comes from, and it also is here to show you the urgency and the consequences of choosing to not respond, but to reject that message. Here's the response that's required of us, particularly as Christians this morning from Matthew 10, 1 to 15, is this, to go into the harvest field with Jesus's authority and instruction. It's to go into the harvest field with Jesus's authority and instruction. That's the first thing we see together then. Jesus sends us out, firstly, with authority. If you look down again at verse 1, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. It's important to note as we dive into these verses, okay, it's important to note how we are to read these verses. These verses need to be read thoughtfully and in context. These verses in 1 to 15 are about a specific mission to a specific people, the Israelites, by a specific group, the apostles, the 12, plus as we look at Luke 10, the 72, for a specific period of time with specific instructions. So as you read verses 1 to 15, or as you listen to those verses, you maybe thought, well, how, do, how does that apply to me? Or should we be doing that today? And we need to think carefully about how we apply these to ourselves. It's not just cut and paste. It's not just as straightforward as that. For instance, as we'll see in verse 5, the disciples' mission is limited to Israel only. But that's not true of us today, is it? We're also not told what specific items of clothing we should and shouldn't take when we're going to speak about Jesus or we're going on a mission trip, okay? So we need to read these verses carefully. That's a reminder for us, it's an important reminder that as we read the Bible, we are to read it thoughtfully. That though it's clear, it still needs to be read and applied thoughtfully, carefully. It doesn't, the Bible didn't just fall into our laps and we just cut and paste it into our everyday circumstances and situations. It was revealed to specific people in a specific context so we must consider that original audience and context and not make, therefore, simplistic or untrue or unhelpful applications to our lives today. All that said, 
we can draw timeless principles and applications for us today from these verses. First thing we see in these verses then is that Jesus calls his 12 disciples. It's the first time we see the 12 defined as a group within the, the Gospel of Matthew. Usually in the Gospels you see it a bit earlier, but in Matthew it's taken them to chapter 12 to show us. Question maybe is, why 12? Why not 10? Why not 8? Why did he gather these 12 disciples? Uh, well, one uh, study Bible helpfully says this, the emphasis on Jesus' selection of 12 disciples reminds us of the 12 tribes of Israel and identifies Jesus' followers, that's the church, as the new and true Israel and the beneficiaries of God's promises to Abraham. What's happening here in, in chapter 10 is a fairly seismic moment in the, the story of God's plan of redemption and of the, the church. We see the foundation here of the church beginning to be formed. If you want to think about it as breaking ground and laying the foundations on a building, the ground is beginning to be broken here. The first spade is going in in chapter 10. The foundation is beginning to be laid, and Matthew 10 is a window into that beginnings of the church, the church that we belong to today. Second thing we see then is that he gathers the 12, and then he gives them authority in verse 1, authority for the mission they're about to go out on. It's a unique authority. It's a unique authority in that they are given the authority to do what Jesus himself could do. They're able to multiply his ministry. They're able to heal every disease and affliction. I don't think that's something we can particularly say is true of us today. Every disease and affliction. There is a uniqueness to the authority that they're given here. They're given this authority to multiply his ministry. We also see in verse 2, if you look down, they're called the 12 disciples in verse 1, but then the 12 apostles in verse 2. That's the first and only time in Matthew that they're referred to in that sense. And actually, it's the only time that that phrase, the 12 apostles, is used in all of the Gospels. The, the word apostle here is used in the sense uh, of the office of the apostle. Apostle can be used in the sense of being a messenger or being sent. But here it's speaking about the office of apostle. Who were the apostles? They were those who had personally seen the risen Lord and were commissioned by him. Here we see that they identified as those who were to play a key role in the founding of the church as we know it today. So we move forward in the New Testament, we see the term apostle refer to that unique group and Ephesians 2 verses 19 to 20 tells us, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So what we're seeing here in verses 1 to 15 is this authority delegated to them. We see firsthand this authority passed on. They didn't create the office of apostle for themselves. They didn't decide to make themselves important in the story of the church. They were given authority by Jesus. It was delegated by him to them firsthand. So these verses are here to show us where the apostles' authority comes from, an authority which authorizes them to be his representatives and spokesmen, an authority which enables them to play a foundational role in the building of the church. Therefore, we should listen to them, and we should be confident in what they say and in the foundation that they've laid for us. Acts 2.42 tells us to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, we can be confident as we devote ourselves. We can be assured that as we do that, we are devoting ourselves to ones who have been given direct authority on behalf of Jesus. 
Uh, and in 1 John chapter 1, we see them go at pains to, to, to ensure us and to reassure us that what they're teaching us comes directly from Jesus himself. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, which we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This is what we've given to you. This is what we've taught you. This is what we've spoken to you. We should be confident that though this church is only roughly three years old, our mission, our purpose, our foundation, our authority is thousands of years old. And most importantly, it's based on the authority of the Son of God himself. Verse 1, what does Jesus give them authority over? Well, it's over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. When we see that combined with verse 8 in a moment, we see that they're to do what Jesus did. The summary of his mission in 423 and 935 of Jesus' ministry, that's exactly what they're to do. They're to expand this mission. And the theme of authority is something we see, isn't it, right at the end of Matthew. Right at the end of Matthew, we see in the Great Commission the authority of Jesus given to us to make disciples. If Matthew 1 to 4 is the specific commissioning of the 12 disciples, in, in many ways Matthew 28 is, is our commissioning. This is their specific commissioning. Matthew 28 is, is our commission. We are also sent out based on the authority of Jesus. Matthew 28 says that they gathered, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, as Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. They doubted. Sometimes we doubt. The thing that we're sent out to talk about, the, the thing that we're building this church on, do we realize the authority that is there, the foundation that has been laid? We aren't to doubt, but to be confident and courageous. We, we go because of and based on the authority of Jesus, just like the first 12. And listen, we're going to need to keep applying that promise of authority to our hearts, to our doubtful and often fearful hearts when, when we see what lies ahead of us in verses 16 to 33 and beyond. We need to be reminded of Jesus' authority, of our foundation which enables us to stand firm and to keep spreading the gospel no matter what comes our way. And then in verses 2 to 4, he lists the disciples, he lists the twelve if you know your Bibles, you know the gospel is there, a mixed bunch, different backgrounds, different giftings, different roles, faithful, yes, but also not immune to weak faith, failure, sin. Yet these are who Jesus calls and, and commissions to go. It's a reminder for us that he calls us and he commissions us as Christian. He, he calls and commissions a motley crew, whether you like to think you're part of that or not. He calls and commissions a motley crew of fallible people from a diversity of backgrounds, of giftings, of roles, to be his representatives. And that what matters most is not our ability, but his authority. That's what matters most. It reminds us too in that in calling 12 and then in Luke 10, the 72, mission is meant to be a team game. In fact, in Luke 10, he sends them out two by two. We're not to go alone. Doing mission together is more effective and means we're more likely to endure in it. It means doing mission together as a church, drawing alongside other Christians to evangelize, uh, whether that's our neighbor, uh, alongside other Christians to evangelize our neighbors and colleagues. It means if you're in conversations with a, a colleague or a friend or family member, hey, bring your other Christian friends into those things. 
Expose them to more than yourself. Invite them to church. Invite them to events. Invite them around to your house. Mission together, together, is not just encouraging, but it multiplies witness. And it also exposes unbelievers to the Christian community in a way that one person can't. It allows them to begin to see the life of the church. That Judas is named at the end of these verses, in verse 4, also reminds us of the reality that leaders in God's church are not infallible. In fact, often worse than that. And that they have authority insofar as they faithfully proclaim and follow Christ. J.C. Ryle says we should follow our leaders so far as they follow Christ, but no further. It reminds us, too, that our hope and trust must be placed most of all in Christ himself, the head and cornerstone of the church. So, Jesus is at work to send. That's the encouraging thing about chapter 10. Jesus is at work to send. He is Lord of the harvest. Let's trust him. In his providence, he provides workers. He sends. He doesn't stand by and allow the harvest field to go unharvested. We also see then that we are to go. We must be willing, as we thought last week, to be the answer to our own prayers in Matthew 9.38. We must see here the the crucial and urgent nature of the, the mission. How else will the harassed and helpless encounter the good shepherd and know his loving care? We must go. We must send. We must be a church that not only goes, but sends. Sends out in an everyday kind of sense and in every week. As we gather here every Sunday, we gather on Sundays we gather at various times during the week, but most of the week we're scattered. We're, we're scattered to, to be sent out, to be, to be salt and light, to be witnesses, to be on mission. And in a more formal sense, perhaps, we want to be a church that sends out people into gospel ministry, workers, shepherds, elders, pastors, planters, missionaries, whatever it might be. That must be a burden that's on our hearts as a church and something we work towards. We are the fruit of churches who have given and who've sent whether that's people in this room or people who've come to be with us for a time. We're the fruit of people in this room inviting friends, going into their workplaces, having gospel conversations. That's how the missions advance. That's how people encounter Jesus. As we go and as we send, we must keep the compassion of the crowds and the critical nature of the mission in front of us at all times. All of us. Not just just those who stand up the front, not just those who have a title in front of their name, whatever it might be, it's all of us. And we are sent out with Jesus' authority, as Matthew 28 reminds us of, and the promise of his presence. So that's the first thing we see. Jesus sends us out with authority. The second thing we see in verses 5 to 15 then is that Jesus sends us out with instruction. If you look down at verse 5, these 12, Jesus sent out instructing them. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the first piece of instruction we see here is that they are to to go and proclaim. Again, it's reflective of Jesus' own ministry. Where are they to go? Well, they're to go to the lost lost sheep of of Israel, not the the Gentiles. Of course, we've already seen in chapters 8 to 9 that Jesus is coming and his mission and the message of his kingdom is to extend to Gentiles. We saw that, for example, in how uh, the, the faith of the ruler and his daughter. So we've already seen, and even in the Old Testament, you see those little snippets of non-Jews coming into the, the family of, of God. But we know that God's promises came first to the, 
to the Jews. So Jesus' ministry and that of his disciples begins there. Our mission, of course, does not have the same limited focus. Our focus is all nations. It's a global focus. It's a, it's a global expansion that began, of course, in Acts 1 and the one that Matthew 28 calls us to. That's where they're to go. That's where we're to go. What are we to do? Well, verses 7 to the first half of verse 8 tell us we are to proclaim. Again, Jesus in Matthew 4, uh, Matthew four seventeen, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We are to proclaim, as we thought about last week, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We're to announce the gospel of the kingdom. The good news that Jesus has come to take away the sins of his people, that he has come to usher in an eternal kingdom and offer eternal life, which is available to all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ. And verse 8a, first half of verse 8, we are also like Jesus and the apostles, we are to announce the kingdom in both, uh, well, sorry, that verse 8a tells us that like Jesus, the apostles are to announce the kingdom in both word and deed. They are to proclaim the kingdom and then affirm, affirm the authority of the message of the kingdom and also give a glimpse into the realities and nature of the kingdom through signs and wonders. They are to proclaim the kingdom. They are to affirm the authority of that proclamation through signs and wonders, which also compassionately give us a foretaste and a glimpse of the kingdom that is to come. Acts 2.22 tells us, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So these signs and wonders serve significantly to affirm the authority of the words that are said. We see that too in 2 Corinthians 12.12, where Paul talks about, Paul who's also included amongst those uh, original apostles, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. The first thing we can draw from verses 78 then is that the message we proclaim, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, has been attested, affirmed, authenticated through the signs and wonders of both Jesus and the early apostles. It's been rubber stamped. It's not just something they made up. They give a divine authority and affirmation to it through the divine miracles that they performed. The second thing we might ask then is, should we expect to do the same as the apostles? Should we expect to do verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons? Again, we must approach these verses uh, with the same consideration we thought about at the beginning. We must consider that Jesus is speaking specifically to the 12 here. We've already seen that much of what directly applies to their circumstances doesn't necessarily directly translate to our circumstances today. And whilst we must not limit what God can do, okay, absolutely not, and hear me on that, whilst we must not limit what God can do in our day, we know that the office of apostle and the 72 included in that were unique in what they did in the signs and wonders that they performed. Again, they are to given authority to heal every disease and every affliction. We know that their message no longer requires authentication. So whilst these things may happen today, they're no longer necessary. We should all be able to agree on that because they've already been affirmed. We must also make a distinction between the time we see here in, in, in the Gospels and in Acts 
and the time that we are in now. Jesus himself in Matthew 9.15 made that distinction. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. Jesus himself even makes that distinction between that unique period of time and the time that we find ourselves in today. We must also consider that direct commands to raise the dead and cast out demons are found nowhere outside this select group of people. Instead, today, the emphasis of our ministry is on proclamation. Proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom alongside prayer for healing, yes, and God can still still heal. Proclamation of the gospel alongside prayer for healing, resisting the devil as we see in Ephesians 6 and 1 Peter 5, and calling people to the, pointing people to the resurrection from the dead, the resurrection of Christ, and calling people to the resurrection of life through Jesus' own words. And in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's what we're called to do. We get to call people to a resurrection from the dead that lasts forever. That proclamation is to be our emphasis is also seen in verse 11 where it's the reception of the apostles' words that is the defining point of their ministry. All that said, though our mission may differ from theirs in certain regards, verse 8 still teaches us that we're to go to the kinds of people that Jesus went to, the sick, those considered unclean, the oppressed. Jesus moved towards these people particularly. So must we. Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It reminds us that as we go out on mission as a church, as individuals, we will encounter people in desperate situations, as we thought about a few weeks ago. Desperate situations desperate people whom we are called to help both physically and practically and also offer them the hope of the gospel. The reality of demons as well once again reminds us that as we go out on mission, we don't go into a neutral world. We go into a world where we will experience spiritual warfare. And so we must sit up and stand firm. We are to go and proclaim. Third thing we see as well is that we are to trust God, or second thing, sorry, is to, to trust God to provide you look down at verses 8 to 10 again. You receive without paying, give without pay, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. The principle in the second half of verse 8 there is that it, it, it costs you nothing to enter the kingdom of heaven. It costs you nothing to receive the gospel. Therefore, don't offer it at a price. Don't charge unbelievers to hear the gospel. Verses 9 to 10, of course, as we mentioned before, they don't prohibit us from now from taking luggage with us on a mission. Okay, so if you ever go on a mission trip, you have to just pack the bare minimum like they did here. Nor does it prohibit us from raising funds to make that mission possible. The principle here, though, is that mission and materialism do not go together. Mission and materialism do not go together. Mission is not about financial gain. We aren't to acquire things, material things, as a result of what we do. Anything we would seek to gain would only be to advance the mission further. The life of mission is to be a modest one. That's what these verses also reveal to us. 
one that depends on God to provide what we need. In many ways, it's to be a life of faith. As they went out with bare minimum, essentially, they were to go out in in faith. So the means by which they went out, living by faith, was essentially there to point people to the response of the gospel that was longed for, faith itself. If some who proclaim the gospel look like they're out to make a profit and live a plush lifestyle, the encouragement here would be to, to not listen to them. We are not to peddle the gospel for the sake of making profit or living a plush lifestyle. How will God provide then? How will he provide? Well, in his providence, he promises us that he will provide for us. Matthew 6. I know what you need. I will give you all that you need in order to do my will. That promise stands for us as we seek to be Christians and, and as a church on mission. Don't be anxious. What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He knows, he sees the needs that we have as individuals and as a church, not just for our Christian lives, but as we seek to spread the gospel on mission. But those resources don't just fall from the sky. The means are the generosity of God's people themselves. The laborer deserves his food. There is an expectation that as the disciples and the apostles go out here that those they uh, share the gospel with will give them or provide them with the bare necessities in order to keep going. So God provides ultimately, and we must have that, we must believe he will do that by faith, but ultimately the means are through his own people. God's people must provide for God's mission. He uses means. The harvest is plentiful and resources are required. We are to give generously of our resources and of our time and of our money to make the mission possible. So let's ask ourselves this morning, what are we contributing in order to make this mission possible? There is an urgent need. There is a plentiful harvest. How can we use what God's given us uh, as far as is possible for us to make that mission advance? And then the third thing that he instructs us in here is invest in those who listen. So we're to go and proclaim, we're to trust God to provide, and we're to invest in those who listen. Let me just read those verses from 11 to 15 again, if you look down with me. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. The house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. If not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on that day, on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that time. So a worthy person there is speaking to someone who's receptive, who receives the, the message of the kingdom, who listens to the apostles' words, which are the words of Christ. There's someone who believes. Yet these verses also remind us, don't they, as we thought about that, there will be people who don't receive, who don't respond positively, who will not receive the message of the kingdom. We should expect that. We should prepare for that and not let let it throw us off, lest we give up at the first sign of rejection. It's so easy, isn't it, in our everyday evangelism or even as a church, to get discouraged or to give up at the first sign of rejection. We need to be realistic about that. There's going to be people who don't like what we have to say or don't want to listen to us. The act of shaking the dust off their feet here, which is, I, I, I'm not, I don't think many of us in this room will have done that, 
is something that was to, done when, to be done when people did not receive their message. It was really a stark cultural custom making clear that rejection of the gospel, of the proclamation of the kingdom, of the apostles' words, which are Jesus' words, left you outside of God's people. It was making clear that their rejection meant they remain outside of God's people and outside of God's kingdom. Might seem harsh, but in many ways it was creating gracious clarity that rejection of that message is not a neutral thing. We're not to shake the dust off our feet, so to speak. But as we proclaim the gospel, though we don't coerce people, we must be clear on the consequences of rejecting Jesus. What are those consequences? Verse 15 tells us, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Genesis 19, God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in judgment because of their wickedness. And Jesus declared in Matthew 11, as we'll see in a number of weeks, that Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented if they'd heard the message the disciples announced and had witnessed the same signs that these people were witnessing now. If you aren't a Christian here this morning, the revelation of Christ means you are in a more privileged position than those in the Old Testament who face judgment. As such, you will have a greater opportunity. You have a greater opportunity, but also a greater responsibility to repent and believe lest you fall under a greater judgment than Solomon and Gomorrah. We stand on, we live on the far side of Christ. We have greater privileges. We know the gospel. We, we've, Christ has come. We see those signs and wonders. We should be careful not to reject those. Another principle to draw from those verses is that given the urgency of our mission, given how many harassed and helpless people there are, and how many people need to know that shepherding care, we should be wise when it comes to who we invest our time and our energy and our efforts in with, with respect to sharing the gospel. Given the urgency of the mission and the, the, the number of people who are harassed and helpless, if someone proves themselves consistently unreceptive and unresponsive, we should graciously move on and pray that in time they might soften. It's not that we never have that conversation with them again. It's not that we never make an effort sometime in the future. But if someone proves consistently unreceptive, we can't spend all our time with them. There are many sheep out there who are harassed and helpless who need to hear the kingdom, the message of the kingdom. These verses also show us that when it comes to mission, our partnership and fellowship is to be with those who receive and believe Jesus, who believe the gospel, who accept the apostles' teaching as authoritative, all of it. You see that in these verses, that they are to stay with those who, who are receptive to them, and then that is to be a base for their mission within that town. So a reminder for us as a church, as individuals, that we can only really fellowship and partner with those who believe the gospel, who believe the apostles' teachings, who stand on the authority of God's word. The message is too important, and the mission is too urgent to mess around fellowshipping with and partnering with other people and churches who are not clear and faithful on the gospel and the word of God. It's too urgent. The need is too great. So, we are to go into the plentiful harvest with Jesus' authority and instruction. That's what we're called to do. We are Jesus' representatives, his ambassadors. We proclaim 
his life, his death, his resurrection, we're called to live a life of kingdom mission, which Matthew 10 calls us to. He's given us authority. He's given us instruction. The message is of eternal significance. The mission is of urgent importance. We must commit ourselves, our lives, and this church to sending and going in light of all that we see here. And know that we have his grace and his presence and his help as we do so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your providence you provide workers for the harvest field, that you have made it so that your word, your message, the kingdom has spread even to us, that it began back then and has made its way all the way to us. Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for including us in your kingdom and help us to be those who now see the, the great privilege and opportunity and responsibility we have to be those who go, to be those who send, to be those who take your message uh, and proclaim it to others, Father. Help us to see the urgency of that. Help us to do that well, to do that wisely. Help us to be realistic about what we will encounter so that we would not become discouraged. And help us, Father, to rest and be assured by the authority on which we are sent out on. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.